Welcome, adventurers. Who is this upstart lord, Sinvarista? And is it true? Does he know the feared shadow figure called Anganar? Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio presents... Tales from the Dungeon The path from Borgen to the door in the cave under the Grey House was not a short one. Lord Sinvar Ista had turned out to be as arrogant as he was handsome. He had welcomed them to Borgen with a dinner so extravagant and excessive that Mela had cringed when he casually told her no need to worry about finishing everything put before her. His pigs were the most well-fed in the province. Joke or not, it made her nauseous. The living arrangements he had made for them were closer to town center, for easier access to the various archives, universities, and other repositories of knowledge, both written and living. He had said the accommodations were modest, and maybe they were compared to other manors in the area, but it was a manor nonetheless. Three stories, eight bedrooms, and a sizable garden grounds surrounding it. It was ridiculous. Life began again much the same as it had in Roshan, with the exception of the opulent upgrade to their living quarters. Doomran and Skeldi began their visits anew, and it turned out sitting in a library in Borgen was no more entertaining than sitting in one in Roshan. Sarkeesian and Colfin began to familiarize themselves with the city's taverns and outfitters. Given the elevated status and the typical inhabitant of the neighborhood where they stayed, leaving a mark for Rianach to find them was out of the question. Two weeks in, Sarkeesian had found a likely bar and left a mark there on a corner post. The only notable difference in their routine were their regular visits to give updates to Lord Sinvarista. These were typically awkward and brief. Nominally, they were to occur every two weeks, but Evredine often canceled or rescheduled at the last moment. When they did occur, it was clear that the self-involved Lord was not really listening, but instead reading other documents as Colborne spoke. Once, he even spent the time with his back to them, studying his face in a mirror. As strained as these visits were, it was the access to his manner that had opened the door for them. Colborne made it a habit of taking a different member of his team with him each time. Sarkeesian once, then Colfin, then Mela herself. They kept their eyes and ears open. There was little to be learned from Everdine's words, unless you were yet unconvinced of his greatness. Loose contact with Ketri was established after three weeks, and with Rianach just after four. 
simple as it was to get Lord Sinvar Ista to talk about himself, it was nearly impossible to get him to pay attention to them, with the possible exception of Mela, who felt his gaze linger on her from time to time. It made her feel like a street urchin again, skin dirty, stomach aching and empty. Things as they were, they had no chance to develop even the most superficial relationship, one that might allow them to begin subtle inquiries into his politics or motivations, that they might begin to glean if and when he had contact with Enganar or the Emerald Scarab, or the worst possibility, neither. Nearly three months in, and growing frustrated with their lack of progress, Sarkeesian proposed a new, more dangerous route to gather information. They knew they had times that the gate to Lord Sinvarista's manor would be open. They had met him in many different rooms within, but after discussing it, the four of them that had been decided a small study that adjoined an opulent set of sleeping chambers would be the most likely place for Everdyne to compose and keep any correspondence, especially if it was of a more personal nature. Mela had hoped Rianak would say no when they told her the plan, but the young halfling had agreed. She was to tail Colborn and Colfin on their next meeting, Colborn turning her invisible at the last possible moment. She would follow them through the gate and into the manor. It was here the plan grew. Shaky. Rianak had never been in the building, and none of them had been given a detailed tour, so the map created from their accumulated observations was far from complete. In fact, Colborn felt they had seen far less than one-tenth of the total rooms that existed within Ephrodine's enormous abode. Beyond the lack of map, they never knew from meeting to meeting where they would be brought to attend the Lord. His study, the fourth-story veranda, the dining room, the gardens. So they would just have to hope they were brought somewhere besides the study. So hopefully it would be unoccupied and Rianak might find her way there having a chance to investigate. All this, plus getting away unnoticed, had to happen in less than a bell's time, before the spell's effect ended and the invisibility faded. The first time they had tried, they had been turned away at the gate, Everdyne having found more important business at the last moment. The next time they had met in the study itself, which had been a boon if just barely. It meant Rianak was able to follow, seeing exactly where she needed to be. It also meant she had to make her way back out of the palatial residence empty-handed. It was slow work. It had turned out to be some sort of cleaning day, and attendants were everywhere. Rianak later recounted how she had just managed to awkwardly climb an outer garden wall, falling to the street beside the manor just as her form became visible. The noise had drawn the interest of a guard patrolling the perimeter. At the last beat, Rianak had managed to change her appearance to that of a wealthy, much older halfling woman. 
When approached and questioned, she took to quickly lambasting the guard, accusing him of harassing an old woman on her daily walk, and that Lord Patron Waswana would hear of this. Rianak had never met, nor seen a picture of Lord Patron Waswana, knew nothing of their politics or how the mention of their name might be received. She had literally just overheard someone speaking the name in a pub the night before. Cinder had taken mercy, and the guard had given a rapid retreat, begging her pardon and might go right and bless her. Given her narrow escape, Sarkeesian was reluctant to try again. But to the surprise of all, Rianok insisted on going. Who knew what might have happened if she hadn't? Colborne and Mela had met with Lord Everdyne in a dining room they had not yet seen as he ate his breakfast. Rianok had made her way directly to the study. It had taken fifteen bars to find them. The letters. They were in a hidden safe inside the floor, directly under where Everdyne's chair sat. A trap was disarmed and a lock picked. They were tied together in a bundle with a silk ribbon. Each bore a stylized E on their folded face. The letters contained various instructions, mostly about who to influence, and bits of information to hold over one particular lord patron or another as blackmail. One made reference to insert the provided tome titled The Green Men in the Woods into the Paradig Index, one of the many in the city. It was the last letter, the one stating severe unhappiness with his his being Everdyne, handling of a certain delicate matter, going on to state he was to never speak her name again, or he would find his favor revoked and his tenure ended. Every single letter ended with a note that they were to be destroyed. The blessing of Everdyne's vain arrogance the fact that he believed himself above rules, smarter than all others, could in retrospect be credited as the single defining factor that helped save the province from nightmare and ruin. Rianok's escape from the residence this time was even more problematic than the first, as the invisibility wore off before she had even left the building. Hiding in a little-used room for some time, she finally made her way outside in the guise of a house attendant. Reaching the gate, Rianok had done her best to charm the guards with a spell. It had taken hold on one, yet not the other. A chase had ensued, Rianok finally escaping using a spell that Cinder whispered the intricacies of to her as she ran. A small rip in reality opened ahead of her, and she plunged through. Appearing two streets away, a place she had conjured in her mind, still moving at a full run, she had nearly collided with a stupefied pedestrian before slowing to a fast-paced walk. She had turned the corner and dropped the disguise, ducking into a tavern three doors down to calm her nerves. They discussed the contents of the letters at length, took time to ponder them on their own, and then discussed it again. 
Rianok had left the actual letters in place and rearmed the trap in hopes the breach would go undetected. So the information they had was to the best of her recollection. The letter E on the letters garnered the hope that it stood for Anganar, verifying the connection they sought. Colborn had pointed out E could also be for Emerald as well. The manipulative and secretive nature of the letters seemed consistent with what they knew of the Emerald Scarab, as well as placed a more terrifying perspective on the scope and influence of their reach. If they already had or were beginning to influence the ruling council of the second biggest city in the province, who knew how far their reach extended? The oddity of the mentioned tome bothered Colborn a lot, so much so that he had gone two days after the incident and visited the Paradig Index, reviewing and reading the book in question. After hours of study, he had nothing. It was folk tales about the Creus and Dare, this particular book referring to them as some sort of green, fey-like creatures that had dwelled in the Gimlin woods. If there was some secret code or message hidden within the text, he couldn't find it. The last bit of intrigue that had left something to think about were the instructions for Everdyne to never speak her name again. Was her the Emerald Scarab? With this knowledge, the focus of their plan changed. If Lord Sinvar Ista was receiving missives from either Enganar or the Emerald Scarab, they had to be coming via messenger. All of their extra time turned to observing the manor, watching the routine comings and goings of the house. It took months to develop even a basic understanding of all that went on, noting traffic and times of day at all three gates, backtracking the trails of messengers and delivery services, and watching over those as well. During this time, it was discovered that Sinvar Ista had used his own private messengers about once every two weeks to send and receive correspondence to Feld's Crossing. Sarkeesian had decided this was worth investigating. Colfin had made the first trip, finding nothing out of the ordinary, messages being picked up and delivered from a military post service in the walled city. Rianak was supposed to make the second of these trips, but her talents with disguise had been needed to pursue another possible lead. And so Mela had gone in her place. The trip to Feld's Crossing had passed without incident. Mela expected little to change on the return trip, and nothing did on the first day. However, on the second, a bell or so after midday, the messenger had stopped and tied his horse to a tree, hopping down, stretching, and then making their way toward the river. They knelt and began to refill a water skin. The day was not overly hot, and a single water skin should have been more than enough to make it from one road camp to the next without a refill. It was good fortune that the road was fairly busy at this bell, so when Mela pulled off the opposite side and stepped down, she didn't stand out. She knelt down and made as if she was inspecting her horse's hoof. The messenger was taking their time. 
The swimming feeling washed over Mela, the one that came from time to time, as if another looked through her eyes. It was followed by the most unnatural sensation of her eyes wanting to turn, her head wanting to turn. The urge became overwhelming. The feeling persisted until her vision slipped back to the road, back to the tied-up horse. Why would she? Before the thought could be finished, she saw it. The flap on the saddlebag move. It was so minor that it would have not been hard to blame a gust of wind, had there been one. Something flickered, and for one strange moment it seemed there was the edge of a letter pressing up and into the saddlebag. But there was nothing. Her eyes scanned frantically. Four beats. Ten. Maybe she hadn't. And then, opposite the horse, south of the road, the grass on the ground moved ever so slightly. And then, a pace away, again. Another pace, and yet again. The revelation hit her. Colborne's muttered words, Rianak vanishing from sight. She watched the grass. The pattern persisted. Invisible. Someone was invisible and had slipped a message into the bag. The motion stopped. The wave of the watcher behind her eyes surged. It was a warning. Mela turned her head quickly away from the open field, fussing with the horse's shoe again for a few moments before standing, patting her mount's flank and climbing back on. She kicked the horse into a walk, eyes locked on the road ahead. The messenger, both visible and, she hoped with all she was, the invisible, were left behind. The corridor ahead was empty. Unlike the cave, it was lit. Torches on the walls flickered with an unnatural, sickly green light. Floors, walls, and roof were perfectly square, made of some black stone polished to a glass mirror finish. The torches were placed in sconces on the wall at regular intervals, every twenty paces or so going back as far as even Mela's keen eyes could see. The light reflected in the polished surfaces, and the reflections cast reflections of their own, creating an illusion of some nightmarish, infinite space filled with flickering green flame. She could see no cause for it, but cold air rolled out of the door, making Mela's breath mist before her. She turned to look back and up at Sarkeesian. The woman's face could have been a stone, staring within. Colborne and Colfin walked slowly ahead, stopping on each side of Sarkeesian, their gazes cast within as well. Mela's eyes flicked to Rianak. She smiled, but her eyes looked panicked. Mela was more disturbed by the fact that she saw discomfort on Ketri's face, to which she had looked next. She had never seen the tall woman afraid of anything. Until now. Sarkeesian's words came. To cast light in the dark places, there was a pause. 
licked her lips and swallowed. She opened her mouth, and as she spoke, she found her words joined to the chorus of all the others to help where it is needed. Sarkeesian nodded and stepped ahead into the black. A step that cannot be taken back has just fallen. What lies in the passage ahead? Inganar or death? Stay tuned next week for the conclusion of The Undying Emerald. good patrons. Yeah, you heard it right. Uh, next week, <laughs> at very, very long last, uh, season five will come to its conclusion. Uh, given the length of the season, I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to end it as far as my normal season wrap-ups, but I'll have more information after the end of next episode about uh, the end of season five, uh, the beginning of season six, and all of that. Hope you are all well, and thank you so much.